everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Wink Twyman and Jen Richmond. Um, three of us met when a few years back when we were doing some work with Counterweight, and I'm having them on today because they've written a new book called Letters in Black and White, and it's a discussion about race and racism. They were both, um, as Wink put it, they were both feeling alienated by the new discourse around race and racism. So Jen is the co-founder and director for the Institute for Liberal Values, and Wink is a former law professor, uh, went to Harvard Law, University of Virginia. Hi, guys. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Obey. Thank you for having us. So, I mean, I mentioned, like, I'd like to start with your book because, you know, I believe when we first met, you were thinking about it or just started it or something. And so now it's out. And, you know, um, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's it should be arriving next week. So it'll be like my next read. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just, you know, going to just a little introduction and then start talking about the book and how it came about. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start. Um, so for, for me, this was, as, as Wink mentioned, I think, you know, obeyed, I live in Austin, Texas. I attended a diversity training here and, uh, you know, going really, this was pre-George Floyd, so this is pre some of the kind of more hysteria around DEI than we've seen in the more recent past. But I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to write on race and I'm going to write on polarization, I need to go and find out more about, you know, lives that are not mine. And so I, you know, Wink knows this, I went there really with a kind of genuine curiosity. And like I've said, you know, so many times, that was not that was the opposite of what I got. And, and I was so shocked by the affinity groups, by the uh, the actual active segregation that I wrote a piece about it. And really, the rest is history. It went in Ariel magazine. This was when Helen was still running Ario. And after that published, I received a letter in the mail from a stranger. So Wink and I started out as strangers. We ended up as, you know, as close of friends as can be who've written, you know, <laughs> letter after letter to each other. So I'll leave it from there for Wink to kind of see where he felt uh, the the original impetus to write me. But that's how it, that's how the friendship started. Oh, thanks. So when I read Chen's essay uh, in uh, the magazine. I was uh, touched by her um, disappointment at the uh, use of caricatures and stereotypes based upon race. Because I could relate to that so well. I had uh, grown up in a southern suburban small town in Virginia in the 1970s. And I remember uh, that the, 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 the greatest enemy was um, caricatures, racial stereotypes. We were raised to always view that as kind of uh, the villain in our lives. And if you could counteract that, then you were making a plus for uh, uh, for humanity. But I was also struck at the time by a conversation I had with a young relative. Uh, this relative, uh, actually, I think it was April 21st, 2018, before George Floyd had said, Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. And that really caused my head to spin like the uh, the actor in uh, The Exorcist because I was so opposed to everything I had known and had been trained growing up in the South. 
And so I was in that mental state when I read Chen's essay. And we began to uh, write in each other out of a sense of uh, profound and mutual alienation from the discourse of race. And that's how we uh, settled upon writing uh, this book eventually. Okay, well, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting because both your perspectives. So, I mean, I, I think you both know this, but like from my end, it was something similar. Like, I was a guy who worked in IT. I was not vocal. I, you know, I was just going along my, with my life. And then I came back from working overseas and, you know, with me, it started with the discourse around Islam. It was just completely skewed. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I just, the, the things that were, I was hearing, like, I mean, I got called a white supremacist because I was criticizing the hijab. Mm-hmm. And I, it was at that point, I was like, and this was, you know, shortly after I got back. So I got back in February, 2014. So this was, you know, within a couple of months. Um, and I just wanted to know where this was coming from. And it, you know, it just. Do you know Sarah Hader? Yeah, I know Sarah very well. Stuff. I shouldn't say very well, but I know her. Yeah, because I was I was yeah, part of yeah, uh, I was part of XMA, and uh, okay. you know, I've met her a few times. Yeah, yeah. I was really impressed with how she really hammers home the importance of being a dissident in the Muslim community. Uh, yeah, that sometimes that's not really supported. No, but it's it's just more of for me. It was just key, but you know, I'm brown. Where does the white supremacy come from? So it was just it was like I when I that to me kind of hit home like. As soon as I came back, I knew something was wrong. But then when I heard that, I'm like, okay, this talk around race is just just something like it's not normal, right? Um, and so, you know, like that was that's how I got into any of this. I mean, I otherwise, like I said, I would just be plodding along, living my life, and I wouldn't have given a damn. Um, <laughs> exactly. Right. But right, right. So, I mean, if we can get into your book, because I'd like to, you know. If you want to talk a bit about that, talk about how you know, like what you're covering, and you know, like some of the topics, and maybe it, I, I might interject a little bit and try to relate it to some of the stuff that's going on, you know, now. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I think one of the the uh, key uh, conditions for the success of the book was my refusal early out to only talk with Jen through slogan words, through the filter of certain pre-approved words or jargon. So, for example, uh, I remember one early correspondence in which Jen attempted to cast herself as quite privileged. And I just told her, that's not going to work, because if we're going to have an authentic, genuine conversation, you can't uh, talk through and use slogan words that are designed to manipulate the emotions and feelings of others. So once we got past that hurdle, I think we really were able to explore uh, an honest discussion about race in great detail. Do you agree with that, Jen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you though, Obey. So our book is the the way we laid out our letters after we sat back and what Wink. It was about four years of uh, of writing, little three yes. years of writing ish, and then some editing. But the editing was very very minimal. What we did was the letters aren't chronological per se, although they are somewhat because our, our our relationship and our conversation evolved. But the, our first section, our put, first epistolary, 
is really on us, Wink and I getting to know each other. So when we, I entered into the conversation as Winker, I said, I didn't entered into it just, you know, fresh after taking this diversity training. Also obeyed feeling like you, like the world had turned on its head. You know, keep in mind, I think, you know, and we've discussed this before, I lived overseas as well for, you know, a good part of my life. So I came back to the U.S. going, well, did I, I, I must have missed like a memo somewhere, you know, <laughs> yeah. when I was, when I was overseas. And so, as this conversation started, Wink originally had me read this book, which was um, Slavery as It Was and Is. American Slavery as it is. As it is. Thomas Weld. This was written back in the 1800s. It's a thousand accounts of slavery. It is like in every way detailed and brutal. And when a lot of people talk about slavery and if they haven't read this book, it's hard to take them seriously because this is like mm -hmm. the the um, fundamental book that really out details and outlines some of the brutality. Amen, and so our, our original correspondence, I mean, he basically said, I need, before we can really start, we had been writing each other kind of back and forth for a while. And then we said, you know, I think what we're saying is authentic and genuine, and we're pushing back in, on each other in ways that are like friendly and disagreeable or disagreeing, but not being disagreeable. And so we said, let's, you know, should should we write more and should we write for the public, knowing that this, this is a discourse that we think is sorely needed. And at that time, that's when he said, okay, but please read this book first from, you know, cover to cover. And I did. And so our first section of the book is about slavery. And we take a different tack than I think, a, a very different tack than, say, the 1619 Project or a lot of books on slavery. But we do start there. We do start with our history. Um, so, Wink, I don't know if you want to take it from there, but that's, that is... Well, I think that was really important because, you know, we didn't run away from history. And sometimes the argument is made that if you refuse to engage in certain use certain dialogue or jargon, right. you're trying to run away from history. I think with the opposite, I think Jen and I aggressively ran into the history and that gave us the power to, um, to open up and be more authentic. Um, and so in that first set of letters, we reviewed uh, the, uh, the, the atrocities of American slavery. And we also reviewed the lingering impacts of slavery today. I mean, so often people will say, well, because of the lingering effects of slavery, uh, that's why we're in the condition we are in today, and that's why we need reparations for American slavery. Um, I aggressively uh, pushed back against that idea based upon the things I had seen and known and observed. I was in a great position as a, as a co-writer for Jim because, you know, I was someone who actually was born in Richmond, Virginia in the capital confederacy i lived all of my life within maybe two miles of the jefferson davis highway named after the president of the confederate states of america i mean so i knew of the southern experience it wasn't something that i simply read in books I, i'm always amused okay when i uh, read accounts of the south by professors at harvard i've only been down to say the south for a summertime visit i'm always amused by that but in any event, so I think that really gave our, our section of slavery a lot of authenticity. And then the next session of the book, the next set of letters, which I really love, was a tour through classic examples of Black achievement, of triumph over adversity, 
of Brazilians during times of slavery. I mean, that's the thing. People are so quick to just look at slavery, but they oftentimes ignore and do not see that there were always stories of enterprise and accomplishment during those times. And I, I like some of the stories we, we, we select from those times, ranging from Congressman Rainey to uh, Daniel Brown, one of my ancestors, to George LaShawn, uh, to one of the leading pioneer black lawyers in Memphis, Tennessee. It truly is so, uh, um, I enjoyed that because so often you don't read about people of achievement who were black during the time of American slavery. You only read about slaves. And I'll let Jed pick up at this point. Um, if you don't mind, I just want to, like yeah. one thing in, in that is, sure. it's something I've always said, or I shouldn't say always, but recently when I started talking about this is I was, okay, Black History Month. For me, it should be, that's American history, so incorporate that into American history, but in my mind, when you when you just allocate, you know, the shortest month of the year for black history, what are the kids actually going to learn? Like, some of these stories you're talking about, they're not going to learn, so yeah, talk about the bad that happened, talk about the good that happened, talk about, you know, the, talk about everything that happened. Okay, obviously, you know, you're limited by time and this, whatever, but so when you're talking about, you know, the Civil War era or Reconstruction, you can bring in people like Frederick Douglass. You, know, you can bring in other people from that. It, it, it just, that's what I think should be done. Now, you know, so like, I'm glad you were doing that. I so, I so agree. One of the things I'm so excited about is we have a, um, an, uh, a spinoff from the book, that section. Uh, within maybe a week or two, we'll be creating a, a website, which is an exhibit. Uh, and uh, Jen and I had gone to the Victims of Communism Museum in D.C. Uh, last week. And we saw this exhibit, which showed all of these faces of people who were victims of communism. And then the caption was, remember us, remember us. And that was it, the only words. And it was so poignant. And it occurred to me, and a friend of Jen's in that moment, we should have something like that for pioneer black lawyers who are so often forgotten in history classes. So we're working on a, an exhibit online which will capture pictures of 46 pioneer black lawyers who lived during slavery, who rebut all of the caricatures and stereotypes you hear about. And each picture, will have an attached backstory of that pioneer black lawyer. That's our small little part to, that we can do to help expand the abundance of, of and the richness of black life during slavery. Yeah, blackness was more than slavery. Blackness was also enterprise, entrepreneurship, accomplishment, on and on and on. Even in the 1860s, blackness was more than oppression. No, that's great. It, to, to um, put a finer point on what Wink said, we're starting with, because Wink loves Black history, and as a lawyer himself, his particular interest is in Black lawyers. So we've got 46 Black lawyers, but it's just starting there. So the stories will be of the Black lawyers because we've curated that already. But it's the coolest idea, in my mind, or in our minds at least, is where you can look at these, like in our book, we write about John Mercer Langston. And to me, in that section, section two of our book, that was one of the most powerful letters Wink ever wrote me. 
I didn't know about John Mercer Langston before Wink wrote me, but what he did in that letter was he used word cloud analysis. Mm. Okay. And so he's looked at John Mercer Langston's word cloud and then compared it vis-a-vis to Ta-Nehisi Coates word cloud. And the words like John Mercer Langston back in the days of slavery never used like these disempowering words that we hear today. All of his words were around enterprise, even when he like was actually in the midst of some of the, you know, of, of true slavery and oppression. And so when Wink wrote me that, he said, let's let's compare these word clouds. And Wink, I'll let you take it from there because there's some psychology there that I think is really interesting. But that sure. to me was an eye-opening letter of yeah. Yeah. where we're not honoring the past. And for me as a white American, I mean, we, we want to uh, eventually retire from race, but with um, an American with left melanin, let me put it that way. Uh, I I look back at history and the history of slavery, and I look at you know the, the Black American experience with so much gratitude and 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 just awe and for us to see blackness as only oppression erases all of that that's part of this greater american history yeah two points uh so one john mercer langston was just an incredible uh, pioneer black lawyer born in 1820s died in the 1890s i believe but the point is he began his 500-page autobiography with a single phrase, self-reliance, the secret of success. I'll repeat that, self-reliance, the secret of success. So here's a man who literally knew authentic, honest-to-God slaves who nonetheless achieved, and he did not begin his life story of oppression. <laughs> Nothing else matters. Self-reliance. And then when we looked at the use of the word oppression, I believe Tommy Heisey Coates, who was born in Baltimore in the 1970s, used the oppression to describe life at nearly half the rate, if not more, than a man born in the 1820s in Virginia, a slave state. That made no sense to me. If anyone should be using the word oppression to describe life in reality, it should be a man who was born on a plantation not a man who was born in inner city Baltimore in the 1970s. And so that's why I think Jen really was moved by that letter because it shows the power of words, of word choice. You can choose words of disempowerment or you can choose words of power in the most dark, bleak times imaginable. So that's that's the lesson I take away from, from that letter. And I'm glad that Jen was moved by that letter because I think more people should be aware of how the words we use can manipulate our self psychology and our sense of self in the modern age. It's interesting like, when you compare them to Coates because um, when I was like, you know, I took a huge deep dive into CRT and everything starting about like I'd read some of it earlier, but really got into it and just did nothing but read almost just that starting around 2018. But, you know, when I compare uh, Baldwin with Bell, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing. Like Baldwin doesn't shy away from you know bad things, 
but it's a hopeful message. Whereas Bell is just, I mean, the permanence of racism. I mean, come on, like, you know, and it's, it, it just reminds me of like Tom Waits. You know, like, I like the Baldwin because I like beautiful music telling me horrible things. Whereas Bell, it's just horrible. <laughs> yeah. Right. And hopeless, hopeless. Yeah. Right. And, and so then the, uh, the second part of the book uh, kind of walks into the modern era. And, uh, I'm going to let Jen talk about this because she has a sense of discovery. I know it only too well. But <laughs> so often we assume that when we write about Black people, we must be writing about the ghetto or ghetto culture and consciousness. But Jen discovered a different part of Black life, didn't you, Jen? Yeah. Part two of the book. So yeah, part two is more where we are at today. And actually, these letters were probably interspersed with our earlier letters with slavery, with some of our letters. So this is where we kind of collected these other letters that are dealing with the here and now into the final third section of the book. But what's interesting, because some of the ear our earlier letters were around Ta-Nehisi Coates. And early in our correspondence, I ended up, this is pre-COVID, ended up going on a mission trip with my church to Baltimore. And I had just recently finished reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' books. And the church trip we were there on a mission i didn't, had no idea what to expect but of course i sh should not have been surprised when everything was racially stereotyped and caricatured and so we get there you know there with the you know, goal of doing good works and everything was like you know there was this kind of smacked of white saviorism and then we had to go on racial tours of baltimore to see and it, when we in these tours and this is we write about this in the book in these tours of Baltimore, if we entered into a neighborhood where the lawns were manicured and the streets were clean, it was a white neighborhood. I kid you not. It was a white neighborhood. I mean, literally, that is what the tour guide said. See the nice lawns. Where have we crossed the boundary? Now we're in the white neighborhood. And this is like, again, this is kind of early into our conversation. And I write wink back that. And he goes, where, where does this, you know, very ignorant tour guide think black doctors live or black, you know, it's like, who, who, who says that this is because it's manicured. And he, he was so offended by the fact that manicured and clean meant white. And it's that really opened up our dialogue and you see part of that happening. That's kind of the real world. That's an example of one of our real, real world conversations that you find in part three. You just, I just want to, on that right here like so that stupid thing the smithsonian had where you know professionalism punctuality love of the written word blah 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 all that's whiteness and white actually i think they said white supremacy culture the federal government in canada that's what our diplomats are being taught and our ministry of immigration their definition of white privilege says you know regardless of skin color or race if you uphold ideas of white supremacy you have white privilege so if you believe in professionalism, punctuality, love of the written word, you know, objectivity, you know, reason, logic, you are taking on white, you're upholding white supremacy. So then therefore you have white privilege. So, I mean, you're talking about like real world, like this is, our diplomats are being taught that, our foreign service is being taught that, this is how our white immigrate, this is how our department of immigration is looking at people who have white privilege. Like it's, I mean, that, that's insane. Right, right. So so how do we oppose that? How do we bring things back to reality? I mean, one of the things I enjoyed about part two of the book was exposing Jen to Jack and Jill, 
Mobay, have you ever heard of Jack and Joe? I bet you haven't. No. Yeah. Okay. Jack <laughs> and Joe. Either. Yeah, Jack and Joe is a um, an association of elite black moms, which has been around since I think the 1930s. I think it was founded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, by Marion Stubbs. The point is, in the 1930s, the wives of black doctors and lawyers and professionals decided they were in an appropriate place for their children to meet other uh, playmates. Uh, it was during a time of segregation, so there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, interracial contact, but they also wanted to avoid the perhaps uh, counterproductive values and attitudes of lower income black kids. So Jack and Jill became an oasis in a sense. And over the years, Jack and Jill's had developed into a nationwide association and generations of kids have grown up in this association, and they only know blackness in terms of their lived experiences. As uh, well, his dad a doctor, or his dad a lawyer, his mom a doctor, his mom a lawyer. Um, what college are you going to? Are you going to? So the question is never, are you going to college? The question is, are you going to Yale or are you going to Sullivan? <laughs> are you going to Harvard? Are you going to mourn us? And what 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 gave me great joy was exposing Jen to those realities of black life one doesn't see in this kind of training that the diplomats in Canada are receiving. How would they make sense of people who are third and fourth generation Jack and Jill? I, I don't know. By... Okay. Yeah. But okay, question, so right? the, the so the third party in Canada, the, the NDP, mm -hmm. uh, they're their party leader is a Sikh, you know, and he's spouting the same rhetoric. Mm. So it's, you know, what, so are is he telling us that he's not professional, that he's not punctual, that he doesn't like the written word? Like, I mean, what is he trying to tell us when he spouts that stuff? And, you know, he's not white. He's you, yeah, I think it's telling you one of three things. Number one, he's telling you that he's too afraid to speak the truth. And so he doesn't want to admit that to himself. So he spouts the, 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 the slogans and propaganda. Number two, he's telling you that he cares more about his uh, self-interest than he does reality. Or number three, he's just dumb. And <laughs> yeah. out of touch with reality. Yeah. So some things, right? But wait, wait. So. I would say with number two, if I'm mm -hmm. interpreting what you said is you know, self-interest. And we've talked yeah. about this and we talk a little bit about it in the book that, I mean, is this, virtue signaling, if you will, a part of a power grab, a larger power grab. Or to self-interest. Yeah, that's I mean, what, so what, that's right? what I'm asking you. Are, do you think yeah. that's one in the same? Self-interest, oh, power grab. I mean, power I, grab it, is self-interest. I mean, we all, you know, we all go yeah. there when given the opportunity. I think that's human nature. It's not necessarily a criticism, but it's yeah, self-interest. Yeah, I see them as different because okay. if you want a power grab, then you're going to be more aggressive. You're going to be more woke than the woke person next to you. That's a power grab because mm -hmm. the, the culture rewards fanaticism in a sense. But if it's about self-interest and you recognize that it doesn't really ring true, you're going to do the bare minimum to spout the words so that you at least check off the box, but you don't get into trouble. Mm. So I do think there's a difference okay. between the fanatics, right, yep, yep, yep. who are going hardcore those who really are driven by self-interest. What do you what do you think of it? Okay, well, so on on Singh, I think he's a true believer. You know, 
<laughs> here's where I stand on some of this stuff. It's, and I saw this lot in the ex-Muslim community, and I've seen it. And I mean, you saw what happened with atheism, right? I mean, I just start calling a lot of what happened to North American atheism. I say that they became woke evangelicals, you know, like, and it's just. Um, so I saw it where, you know, you're coming in, you you see Sam Harris, you see Hitchens, you see Dawkins, whatever. All these people okay, go to college, believe in the evidence, and. If you're coming from fundamentalist backgrounds, for the most part, you're not reading much. There are people like um, Megan Phelps-Roper from the West Brampton Church, where her grandfather actually made her read like Mill and Milton and just said, you, you have to know your enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you're not well-read. So you come into college, like, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing here. It's, you're not, you haven't sure. read a lot of, you know, Enlightenment thinkers. You haven't read different thought. You've read the religion and that's about it. And so you get to college and you you know started hearing these people, and if you had doubts or whatever, then you start, you know, maybe you take a gender studies course, and okay, yeah, the Abrahamic faiths are homophobic. Let's you know whatever. <laughs> I'm not gonna hide behind any of that. So if you hear that, okay, well, queer theory will help you fight homophobia and transphobia. Yes, it's the antithesis of what you are fighting against, but you don't have any other real point of reference. So mm-hmm. you're just trading one faith for another and you're mm-hmm. going from one, you know, it, okay, so in Canada with the gender stuff, they they passed a, uh, you know, they, they said, oh, we're going to make this a anti-conversion therapy bill. And so it's affirmation care only for for trans kids. And so, but that's another form of conversion therapy because if, you know, from all the studies and I've read and all the people I've spoken to, roughly about 85% of those kids will grow out of it or they will end up being gay or lesbian. So if you're performing these surgeries before they end puberty or you're you know, giving them puberty blockers and all this, like that's another form of conversion therapy. And so it, it's, it's stuff like that. Like that's, um, sorry to ramble a bit more, but like the first thing that struck me when I got back from overseas was a quote by Milton and it's from paradise lost. And it's, you know, the bash, the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is and saw virtue in its shape. How lovely and pined his loss. Now, the loss that he was pining was not just the fact that the armies of heaven beat the armies of hell. You know, he you know, says it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven, blah, 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 all that stuff. But he was also pining the loss that he wasn't the worst. Like, he saw how awful goodness was, how implacable it was. It just came down and it, you know, nothing on its way. And I was like, these people have made goodness awful. Like the social justice warriors, whatever you call them, they're like they're making goodness awful. They're, you know, anti-racism should be a good thing, but you know, Kendi has just poisoned that that term. Um, right. And it's then the next thing I saw was, I mean, it was just you see Hitchens used this a lot. It was from a man from all seasons, and it's Thomas More's talking to the like some basically like a witch hunter type of thing from the the Church of England. And he's like, you know, he said like, you know, to catch the devil, would you burn down was he the law and Roper, this guy Roper says, yeah, I'd burn down every law in England if I could catch the devil. And then Thomas Warren says, well, what would you do when the devil turned around? You have no laws to protect you. And that's what these people, like, I, I see it happening in the States. It's happening in Canada where there is an overcorrection happening and they're pushing. And But the woke have so weakened civil liberties that they have nowhere left to hide when these things are coming from the other side now. And it's just, you know, like, so... Like my worry about all this, and like that's why that's one of the reasons I got into all this was, you know, like I said, the Islam thing, and where did this all come from? But I'm like, the backlash is going to be bad, and so 
I, sorry, like I said, I just kind of went off, it's just rambled and went off on a tangent there. But that's you know that that's where I'm coming from. This one. So when you're talking about someone like Singh, I think he's a true believer. I think he came into it, got it up, picked it up in college. You know, I don't know what his background was. I don't know how much he read or didn't read before, but I think he started believing in it, and he's a true believer. But now he's he's doing like I said. Well, you know, he's making goodness awful. He's he's just he's 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 there's a backlash coming, and it's starting to build. But it's interesting because what's your your temporal sense of the backlash that's coming? I know that some people, when they hear that term, they'll think, oh, like maybe uh, in a few years uh, it'll be coming. To take a longer perspective, I think that what will happen is we'll have a younger generation of people born in the 2030s and the 2040s. And like all young people in history, they're going to rebel against the orthodoxy of their elders, of their parents, of their grandparents. They're going to want to be different. They're going to be like hippies or beatniks. And so as that generation born in the 2030s and 40s grows into their adulthood in the 2050s and 2060s, they're going to bring about the counter because they're going to emphasize the individual more than the hyper-collectivism that their adults and teachers and coaches and principals try to impose on them when they were young. So that's my sense, is that it's going to be a generational change, but it will happen. I, okay, I, I'll, I'm going to let you jump in, Jen, but I just, on sure. that, I'm going to push back just because... Sure. There, it, was just a, it was just a survey came out uh, about Gen Z, mm-hmm. and they, you know, like I think it was like three quarters of them want to have cameras in the home and things like that. It's Once that kind of state goes in... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The re- the rebelling is going to be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. It, it it's just it's it, like I I agree with you that you know kids will rebel and whatever, but right. it's it's how much of that comes in. So it's you know I'm calling what's going on in education. They're they're, they're woke madrasas, and it's not everyone who goes to a madrasa comes out as ISIS, but quite right. a lot of them come out willing to support the action. Not actually go mm-hmm. out and do it, but they will defend it. They'll be apologists for it, and they'll say, right. "Yes, it was right. good, and it was right," and they'll agree with it. Mm-hmm. And so, that, that's my thing. Like, yes, you know, Gen Z and like some of the trans stuff, whatever they're pushing back right now. I've, I've seen like in some protests, the kids are like yeah. pulling down the flags and whatever. But that's kids being kids and whatever. But if everything else, like if they put in that control state, if they put in all that, and this this stuff st- is starting in in kindergarten now, and it keeps going, it's you know, give me the child until he's seven and I'll show you the man, right? Like it's <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I'll I'll just push back just a tad, just a tad. Uh three examples to give us hope and inspiration. Example number one. So where did the beatniks come from in the 1950s, right? I mean, they were born in probably one of the most conforming ages imaginable, but yet they became hipsters. They 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 celebrated difference, right? Number two, where did the hippies come from in the 1960s? Once again, they were probably born in the 1950s, a conforming age of leave it to beaver and father knows best and whatever. They rebelled. And number three, the good old people in Prague in the 1960s and 70s, they were born in communism, but they took to the streets and rebelled against their communist overlords by 1977. I, I mean, I, I will. Okay, so the hippies and the beatniks. It's we weren't an authoritarian state. The state U, U.S. was not 
or surveillance state per se. I know there was McCarthyism and stuff like that, but it was not. Yeah, right. It was not per se. And even in like, actually, okay, I did poli sci, and I concentrated on Central and Eastern Europe, so I kind of know a right, bit. Right. Of, so you know this stuff, right? Yeah. So a bit of the Czech stuff also was Czechoslovakia and Hungary were the least adopting of the communist ideologies. They were also some Ooh. of the first to go free market before communism yeah. fell, like, or a freer market before communism fell. So it, right. they had it, they were going along as much as they could because they were in the Warsaw Pact and they needed the support of Russia, but there was still, you know, the whole bohemian thing. There was still an air of some freedom in there, but as soon as they did start to protest, I mean, you know, you had like Prague 68, you know, the, right. the, the you know, like things like, like it was crushed down fairly quickly. It just, you know, it was, yeah. And I know, I know you can we can go back to the riots in the states and the FBI and like you know the, with the Black Panthers and all that. Like, right, right, but, right. but at least you had the constitutional freedoms to speak. And you think those are gone now? I think they're being eroded. In, in Canada, they're gone. We we have hate speech laws now. We have the government's oh, controlling God. what you can see on the internet. We've had hate speech laws for a long time, but they're getting stricter. The government can can control what we can see on the internet. Uh, Facebook and. Places like that are talking about pulling, uh, not letting people post news ads because the government wants to charge them money, like news stories and things like that. So we're we're getting a lot of, I think, um, if enough people in the states, if the culture shifts against free speech, you can push your politicians to have a constitutional you know, argument in in the house, and you can get rid of the First Amendment. I mean, you know, th there is a mechanism to get rid of it. It's there. And if enough right. of the people want that, and I mean, take a look at the lawyers that are coming out of Stanford and Yale and, um, yeah, yeah, you know, like NYU or, or whatever city, city university in New York, uh, like right. the, 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 the commencement speaker they just had. I mean, <laughs> if that's what lawyers are coming out as, and if this is the general, you know, then yeah, it's, it's, it's not safe. Yeah, yeah, and, and a little bit, a tiny micro pushback, micro pushback, those, uh, uh, straightened uh, loud people at Stanford Law School discover that their speech, their protests have a cost. Do you think that um, moderate federal judges are going to be eager to hire as clerks students that participate in the shouting down of a federal sitting federal judge? I don't think so. So they may find employment difficulties, I think. Okay, yeah, that's true. Anyway, sorry, Jen, we, we've kind of hogged no, the conversation. Yeah, yeah, right, no, right, right, yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm enjoying listening, too. I I would say I'm not, I love Wink's optimism. I am not sure, Obeyed, like you, I think that I'm, 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 I'm concerned. Where I'm concerned is what I'm seeing, and this is kind of the work that I'm doing outside of the book, is our education system, particularly how we teach and train teachers, and then mm -hmm. what they take and train to our young kids, this is, I mean, and again, you, you, Wink could be right that it is, they, they rebel against what we're teaching. But I think so much of it is subterfuge. I mean, it's coming in in ways that I don't think you can, uh, the, the common parent can't really pinpoint because it comes in under the, under the radar. And I mean, it's like, like we were saying, I mean, who doesn't love diversity? I mean, diversity is a great word, you know, yes. it's how you define it. And so I am, I am nervous that at some point this indoctrination is so complete that we can't see the water that we're swimming in. 
yeah, okay, the, like the, the, you're talking about the teaching and all that. Yes, so yes, the, the colleges of ed need to be fixed, and also in the schools. But it's like you know, something you mentioned there. So I, I use an example of Huck Finn, and I said, okay, if you have a woke teacher, so a, a parent can look at a syllabus and go, oh, yeah, okay, my uh, ninth grader is reading Huck Finn. I read Huck Finn, great book, awesome, right? But right. you have a woke teacher come in there, they can take Huck Finn and they can say that. Jim exploited, uh, sorry, Huck exploited Jim's emotional labor and by setting him free, he set himself up as a white savior, yet went back to his life of privilege. I mean, you can totally corrupt the message of that sure. book. Yes. You know, yes. and yes. it's like, that's where I'm like, like, Jen, I'm with you with the education. And I, I'm neither optimist or pessimist. I'm just like, let, let's see what it is and let's fix it. But the, my biggest issue with most of this stuff is we're talking about what they're putting in the curriculum. My biggest issue is the problem with education in Canada and the US is, you know, 65% of the kids can't do math or, or read at a grade level. And like math is something like 85% can't do it at a, are not proficient in math. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's the problem. We shouldn't ever be having an argument of whether this is CRT or not or whatever. We should yeah. be like, this is not, we've been doing this for 30 years. It's not, you know, no child left behind. It's like, you know, all children left behind. It's you're, you're yeah. screwing up a lot of kids and you know, you're hurting the ones, you know, you're hurting black kids, you're hurting Hispanic kids okay. and, and you know, and you, and you say you want to help them. So like that, my biggest issue is, you know, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about what needs to work. But mm. then we get into the secondary argument because this stuff, that's all it's good for it because it knows if you talk, take it head on, it's going to lose because it's just ridiculous beyond belief. But so it has to come in sideways and it's, mm -hmm. oh, it's, it's annoying. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Do you think that black parents should be more aggressive when their little elementary school children are taught slogans like blackness is oppression, nothing else matters, whites are privileged, and you're not? It seems to me that black parents of elementary school kids, like Charles Love, mm -hmm. our friend Jen, Charles Love. It seems to me that that's the natural market of dissidents who should take to the classrooms and put a put a stop on that. What do you think? Of course. I mean, I and but you know with the black parents, it there's a lot going on. Um so I don't know if you know who Lenore Skenazi is. No, uh, no. Okay, so she started an organization called um, Free Range Kids, and it's yeah. or she or she goes by Free Range Kids, and it's called Let Grow, and it's yeah. about giving kids independence. So it, it started because she let her daughter take the subway alone when her daughter was in like eighth grade or something like that. Okay, and she wrote an article, an op-ed in the New York Times, and then she got all kinds of hate, like, "How could you do that? Your daughter could have been raped and killed, and blah blah blah." And I was thinking to myself, I was six years old, I was a latchkey kid coming home alone, like, oh, like, <laughs> you know, so like. But yeah, like, so she started this and it's to give kids confidence, but it's also the other side of it is parents are so required to hover over their kids that they don't have time for anything else. So, you know, you don't have time to do your budget. You don't have time to do this. So you're taking the kids all these places. Yeah. Someone could say, well, you could look at the curriculum while you're sitting mm -hmm. waiting for the karate class, but maybe you got like 20 other things to do. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, when a lot of people say, why aren't the parents looking into it? I think after COVID, a lot of parents saw what was going on. That's when they became involved. Before that, mm -hmm. I don't think they had the time and they never mm -hmm. really paid attention. And it's, right. it's, it's, you know, 
and I don't want to you know, use one of the jargon terms, but it is a systematic problem because you've got laws hindering parents. Then you've got this stuff coming in from the other end and mm-hmm. no one was really paying attention to what was going on because no one had time. And mm-hmm. now they're kind of forced to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, then the FBI labels parents far-right extremists. So, you know, go figure. Maybe homeschooling. What do you think about homeschooling as a solution? Um, I think, it, it, again, it depends on what's being taught and who, how, is it, how it's being done. But, um, you know, again, like, I'm neither optimist or realist, but I'm worried about, like, in Illinois and in Indiana – the government has added in stuff for certification for teaching. And I think for even for like, so they're trying to affect that in homeschooling as well. So you have mm-hmm. to take these DEI courses to get your certification. So if you can't, mm-hmm. you're not certified as a teacher, homeschooling might not work. So mm-hmm. there is like, you know, again, here's where I, I might sound pessimistic, but you know, I'm sorry, but the long march through the institutions is to me, it looks like they're starting to take their victory lap. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, we, it, there is so much, like, if you want to talk about education, you need to fix a certification. You need to fix colleges of education. You need to, you know, have a decent conversation yeah. about what is banning a book and what is a, you know, a school deciding whether that's fit for the curriculum. Like, you know, we have, like, I spoke to Greg Lukianoff about that. And, you know, yeah. he said, yes, when you take away a book, like, uh, what the what's that name of that book? It's, it's got the picture of the, the boy, like, giving fellatio to another boy and it's like they were being taught in like third grade or something like that and he said yeah that's not age appropriate so that's not right. counter to the first amendment so but you need to have those conversations and you need to have a legitimate conversation but we're not having those and it's like that's just one thing if you want to talk about healthcare like i mean i wrote i wrote a report on oncology it said where you shouldn't really consider biology and oncology because if you look at uh, women's cancer rates and men's cancer rates you could be transphobic i'm like people are gonna die that's ridiculous, right? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Like, uh, that's. But, but, do you, but do you have hope that when things are blatantly ridiculous, that's when a thing cracks? When things are blatantly I, ridiculous. I hope so, but it's how many people. Okay, so you're not really online. Like, I don't believe, I don't think you have Twitter. I don't even right, think you have Facebook. Really. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so you. Like you see more of what's going on in the outside world, but you know, and I, okay, and I, it's not like I live on Twitter or anything, but I, I do go right. out and I go, I see little things. I, mm-hmm. you know, I see how just reaction is. Um, at one of my last jobs, the HR manager or director of HR, she was proudly said that, you know, we're giving out, uh, you know, a referral bonuses if you refer someone, and if it's someone who's BIPOC or LGBTQ, we'll give you an extra hundred dollars. Uh-huh. You know? Okay, so I mean, that's like you know, like I said, that's real world. That's not something on Twitter, but it's was, was, a, was that was that in Canada or the US? Yeah, it's in Montreal. Oh, okay, okay. See, that you guys don't have like a Fourteenth Amendment, huh? You don't have like an equal protection clause or a hell. Our government is. Uh, posted ads for employment where they said, you know, basically white people can't apply. So is our national broadcaster. So are some of our biggest banks. Wow. You guys are sunk. <laughs> I'm going to be pessimistic. You're <laughs> <laughs> sunk. That can't be challenged. No, but, <laughs> no, but okay, we, we've, got affirm, we, we've got affirmative action baked into our charter of rights and freedoms. Oh, uh-huh. right, right, right. So, yeah, so... 
you know, you know what that does, right? I mean, that just leads to resentments and grudges mm -hmm. and tribalism, and then you end up at that balkanized place down the road. I mean, but, that's what happens. But right. also, what what you're getting now is there is building a white racial consciousness, and I'm sorry, but sure. you know, you're in two white majority countries. You know, Canada doesn't have nearly the amount of guns as the U.S., but I think it's one third of the population is armed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whereas I think you've got what twenty guns per person or something like that. <laughs> like you know, in a pro majority population white country that's that armed to the hilt mm -hmm. and you're turning out kids who are not well balanced you don't want to like start raising a white racial consciousness i'm sorry you just don't sure right right that's counterproductive that is yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. i mean and I, I feel like you've seen a, a lot of with a, a lot of the school shootings i mean there is I don't know. I don't. I don't think that there might necessarily be causality between what's going on, but I think that we do live in a more in a world that is less connected for being as uber connected as we are is less connected interpersonally, and I think that that's probably where you see a rise in a lot of the violence among youth. I mean, okay. So again, reports are coming out now. Gen Z is like doing really badly. Jonathan Heights been talking about this, how badly they're doing mentally, and it's you know mm -hmm. uh, neuroses and anxiety and all this. Mm -hmm. But I keep going back to the Dalton Academy in New York City. So this is whatever uh, K through eight, yeah. something like forty five thousand dollars a year private school, mm -hmm. and then they started doing affinity groups in two thousand fifteen from grade three to grade eight, and. All the kids, except for the white kids, told that they, they were told that they were oppressed, and Whitey was the one doing it. And the white kids told us that you were the oppressor, and all these. So the kids started going online and just looking up things like what's good about my race, what's bad about these races, and they all turn into ethno nationalists. All of them, within a matter of a few months, because they're and then there's still to this day there's racial violence going on in those schools, and there's a few other schools that were doing similar things. And so, like, see, but but see, that's kind of my point, and I could be wrong, but my point is. What you've just described is hyper identity politics. It's, it's yeah. hyper collectivism. It's you're being an avatar for your group. Your human dignity as a person is lost. It's gone. Mm. But my my intuition tells me that individualism is a constant part of the human condition. It may go underground for a generation or two. You're going to have blowback, not necessarily in a bad way. People ultimately are individuals, and they're going to react to that, I think. Look at it this way. There, if you look at the Briggs-Myers test, there are 16 different personalities, right? Um, I'm an INFP, Jen is an INFJ. But the point being, if nothing else, there are certain personalities that are individualist to the core, are anti-collectivists. There are some personalities like myself and Jen, we're just not on board with the whole affinity avatar for your racial group thing. We're not going away. We're going to remain in existence. And I just think that maybe our role is to get inspiration to the next generation of kids to rediscover their individuality. You're more than a race. You're not just an avatar for your skin color. To me, that's so retro. That's like 1823, not 2023, right? Or am I missing something? Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. But it seems to me that the future 
is with the individual. The past is with race as a determinant of all that you are. Call me crazy, I don't know, but you know, you're not gonna make me into a racialist. You just can't. It's just not my personality. And Jen's probably the same way. So maybe we're the hope. Maybe we're the hope for the future. Because of our personalities, we will provide the resistance, the oasis of a better way of being in the world. What do you well, think? Okay, look, I, I I think it's, you know, this is Gen X's fight. We're mm -hmm. where the people have to do it and but then I also say, you know, Gen X, we would have been known for our apathy if we had cared enough. So let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here talking about caring enough. So let's. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. You know, when I was in, I, I hate, I sound like an old baby boomer, right? But I remember when I was in school back in the 1970s, the big achievement of our lifetime was the, the, the collapse of public school segregation. Brighter future was public school desegregation. The brighter future was getting to know people as individuals, not as caricatures for their race. I mean, that was kind of the big North Star for an entire generation of kids in the South. In the South, no more. Moreover, not New York City or Manhattan or Boston or Cambridge, but the South. And so it just seems like such a historic slap in the face people at Dalton School to reverse all that we knew and stood for back when it really did matter that you saw the individual more than you saw the race. It just seems like a slap in the face to our generation, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, it's just gone backwards. Like, I, I, I don't understand, like, you know. Well, back, backwards before the 1970s. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah, it's, it's not just, just backwards. It's <laughs> Yeah, like we, retro. And it's it's <laughs> and whether it's race or it's gender, yeah. it's gone back to like the nineteen fifties. You know? Yeah, that's all it. of a yeah. sudden like uh, parents are being told if your little boy likes long hair, then he must be a girl. If your little boy plays with dolls, he must be a girl. It's yeah. You know, yeah. And then the other side of that, uh a friend of mine, Joe's got a little kid, went to get Halloween costumes with, with another sure. friend of his. His he went to pick up some his his friend went to pick up some costume for his friend's son and his friend's yeah. son said oh I, I don't know if i can wear that that might be offensive and this was like a little you know eight-year-old kid she's worried about if the costume is going to be offensive or not i'm like the little kid should not be worrying about that like go dress up however the fuck you want to go dress up for halloween <laughs> if it makes you happy do it kid like you know within within limits obviously but you know like come yeah, on yeah yeah he could wait until Yale for that to be worried about a fence and Halloween costumes. Yeah, <laughs> he's, a little, he's a little too young for. I mean, talk about anxiety though. When you when we talk about things like that, I am so glad we did not have social media when I was dressing up for Halloween. I, I mean, and, and I think there is that social anxiety that we just didn't have. We talk about this in in the book a little bit, but. For me, my, you know, Wink talks about Jack and Jill as one of the organizations that his family is a part of. I was a part of something called Indian Princesses. Well, I'm sure that it's no longer called that if it's even in existence. But, you know, talking about Halloween, I love dressing up as an Indian princess. Like, to me, that, I mean, that was like, I was a badass. It's like, <laughs> wow, how cool is that? And it was just, it was out of honor again. So, I mean, then I think when, when I think about could I have been caught on tape? And would I have been like, would that have ruined my life? I mean, no wonder our kids are more anxious. Oh, yeah. 
there's 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 a lot to it. I mean, there's what was that that was it a young girl or young guy? Um, someone found uh, they'd been accepted to a university. They were just about to graduate. Someone found a videotape from when they were like a, a tape or a video from when they were in like seventh grade or something like that. Sure. And sure. Yeah. um, it was them singing a rap song, and they said the N word. Because they were singing a rap song, and then all of a sudden, you know, scandal canceled. The university withdrew their acceptance. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, you, know. You, you know what I find fascinating, and I've mentioned this once, I think, with Jen before over the four years. Once, um, I mean, having having uh, praise to heaven, my experience. I mean, let it be said that it was the South, and it was. A desegregated school, and people there were people who were prejudiced and bigoted. And so, for example, I know of two classmates who were not shy about using the N word uh, in my presence. And I, I always wondered if they'd had social media back in the 1970s, what would have happened to those two people? But I know where they are, who they are today. I mean, this is the question do I? as a minority in the year 2023 have an ethical and moral duty to out them for use of the n-word in the 1970s or has too much time passed or have they changed have i changed what do you yeah. think? well okay again it's you know you're talking about when you were in school so how old right. were they okay so there's that but also Teenagers. yeah okay i'll take two two parts of that question Sure. If they had social media in the 1970s, what would have happened? I don't think much would have happened because the social mores were different. And I mean, you, look, I remember season well, two of Mash. I remember season two of Mash. I wasn't here and I didn't watch. I saw reruns yeah, of yeah. it, and they had a character called Spear Chucker Zones in season two of Mash. Okay, and it, it, right. so like you had that. I mean, like right. Archie Bunker was not exactly the most tolerant character. <laughs> you couldn't do that today. Some of the stuff right, he right. said. Now, right. okay, like when it comes to like you know, we're talking right now, and I'm not going to use the word. I'll say N word. But sure, sure. if, let's say, we were discussing, you know, uh, I believe it's that uh, speech from Frederick Douglass, and he actually uses the word, and we're discussing that. Or if I'm talking about uh, uh, Dick Gregory's autobiography, mm -hmm. I'm going to mm -hmm. use the word. You know, like, right, it, it, right. it's, I, I, like, you know, I'm again, I think when I'm with John McWhorter on this, it's where, you know, you, no, you don't use it liberally, and you don't walk down the street calling people that, whatever. Sure. But sure. if there is a purpose to it like you're, like i said you're discussing dick gregory's autobiography and he called it nigger mm -hmm. so i'm sorry mm -hmm. i can't discuss it without sure. using the word uh -oh, you know, like, be canceled. <laughs> yeah, whatever i mean I just, look first right. of all you have to be picked up to be canceled so i don't think like, exactly. I mean, there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the audience will just hear clapping <laughs> but yeah no i mean like so th that's where i stand with the you know things yeah. like that, but one, one thing I want to ask you because you'd mentioned toy it's now the desegregated schools because that that had an effect on like the Rosenwald schools. But okay, I'm not a fan of critical race theory, and I'm not a fan of Bell's right. um, conclusions. But you know when he, in his the the first I, I don't know if it was the first paper he wrote, but the first paper by him that I read was Serving Two Masters, and he talked about mm -hmm. you know he said they should have desegregated education, not the schools, which to me mm -hmm. is a valid point. Whereas, what does he mean by that? Okay, if you had actually made black schools better, if you want to call them black schools, right? If you'd made, oh, I see. I you'd see made them point. better yeah. instead of busing them 
you know, kids two hours or, you know, an hour each way to a different school, that would have been a better outcome. I agree with that. But at the same time, too, I think if there, it, you know, Brown v. Board of Education basically forced the Rosenwald schools to close down because white families did not want to, especially in the South, I, I you know, from what I've read and whatever, didn't want to send their kids to black schools, even though they were better performing schools than, you know, the white school right next to it. So... Well, let me Yo. give you my experience, and yeah. you can take it for two wheels. There's a lot of nuance yeah. and complexity there. So in my county, uh, first and second grade, I attended an all-black school, all-black, all 100% black school. It was a great experience, great teachers. Um, and it was within walking distance of my home. 1970, 69, fall 69, the county integrates schools, desegregates schools. So now I go to a formerly all-white school. I'm the only black kid in my class. And I take the bus. It's not too far, but I take the bus. And then uh, my family moves out to the suburbs. And it's really interesting because the county is desegregating. You know, there used to be this black and white school system. Now there's just one school system. So in the fourth grade, I attended a formerly all-black school. But my school was only 8% black. So 92% of my classmates were white, but they were in a formerly all-black school the year before. Fifth grade, I attend a formerly all-white school, same racial percentages, but we kind of went back and forth. And then in the sixth grade, I attended a brand new middle school, Virginia High School, never never segregated a day in its life. It had only known integration. I refer to that as the New South. And then in high school, I attended a formerly all-white school that was 8% Black, but many kids attended a formerly all-black school that was now a mostly white middle school. So my point is, there was a lot of complexity in, in Southern communities. And I think in some way that was healthy because if you were a black kid or a white kid in my generation, odds are you attended a school that used to be all black and you attended a school that used to be all white. So I think that just really helped in terms of racial understanding. Because you literally saw, you were literally in a building that could have been black this year and white the next year. Okay. Yeah, it's just yeah. I mean, like I said, because I know you, I, I think you'd mentioned that you'd studied under Bell, so I was just wondering, like, what your I take did, was. I did. Yeah, he wrote my recommendation for law school. <laughs> no, <laughs> I love okay. this book. I mean, no, my recommendation to be a law professor, my apologies, to be a law professor. But uh, he was a great professor, but I think he just became very disillusioned at the pace of, um, racial equality in the South following desegregation, I think he was probably annoyed at the closure of many Black public school institutions. And he probably felt that a lot of work went into little positive advances. And so I think that caused him perhaps to become more dire and pessimistic. And I'm not really sure whether or not that was a power play on his part, or if he generally became depressed about race and saw it as a permanent condition. I don't know. I can't say. Um, but I think that his ideas have done much damage to the spiritual help, health of Black uh, school children. Because I think Black school children were better um, served by a more positive attitudes towards race in, in the South. I think that kids in the 1970s were much more optimistic and hopeful 
than kids might be in the in the year 2023. And that's a tragedy to me. But but to be fair to Derek Bell, because I read his treatise, Race, Racism in American Law, he argues that race tends to go through a cycle. There's a push for integration, which then is met with a push for segregation, which then results in a counter push for integration. So he would argue in his treatise that we always see these cycles between segregation and desegregation, segregation and desegregation in Black educational history. I didn't really appreciate that at the time in 1970 or 80, because I was of the New South generation. But now that I see these strange affinity groups in, 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 in white private schools, I see echoes of what he was talking about. Maybe we are fated to go through a new phase of segregation in desegregated institutions. I am reminded of my niece, whom Jen met a while ago, who lived in, who went to mostly white private schools, but chose consciously to live in a all black dorm at her college. And I kind of thought that was maybe a step back because you're not engaged in the larger world. But I think she was looking for solidarity. And I know, Jen, if you'll touch upon that, I know that that spoke to you, her choice to live in an all-Black dorm, even though her upbringing was, was mostly white private schools. Why did that yeah. stick with you, that choice? Well, there were a few things. One of the things that she said that I thought was, uh, uh, well, let me start by saying I was at, at first disappointed because it, it felt to me that, you know, she'd lived a, a, a very nice life, a life of empowerment. And I don't think she felt herself as ostracized due to the melanin in her skin. And then to go to Stanford, make this choice, then all of a sudden she started to, I think she might've even said, she started to see these things that she didn't really see before. And so I feel like, you know, part of her life story that was unique for herself became wrapped into a larger narrative. Um, wink, as you often say, that blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. Um, mm -hmm. Wrapped into a narrative that is focused on the past and not really how to, to um, move towards a future. So I would say at first I was disappointed. That said, what also struck me about what she said uh, it was very interesting because she said, you know, we, you always like to say, I grew up until the age of eight in an all black neighborhood. You know, the right. street was named after, you know, it was the Twyman neighborhood, right. Twyman Road. Right. And so Wink will often tell people, Obey, that he grew up in this amazingly viewpoint diverse community, but it was all black. And so he felt like he could he could easily go into the larger world because he appreciated different points of view. He appreciated mm -hmm. a disagreement. And he saw that in his, you know, homogeneously black life until eight years old. And so what Wink's niece said, and I thought very astutely, was Wink, you had that. And that was what you had that catapulted you into the larger world. I mm -hmm. never had that. And so who's to say that me getting this now isn't that same you know, developmental milestone that you had when you were young. And to me, I was like, that makes sense too. Mm -hmm. So I don't really, I still am disappointed by the fact that we're back, you know, kind of, I think, backsliding into segregation. But I also take that you had a, a foundational experience that allowed you to better navigate the larger world, no matter the color. 
and perhaps she did had yet to kind of find that in her own upbringing. I don't know. And, and that's a deep idea. I mean, that's a deep thought. And maybe that would explain the need for historically black colleges and universities, that it provides people that an analogous um, anchor, if you will. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm going to push back just a nano bit, just a nano bit. The world, my dear Jen, is not 100% black. The world is what, 18% black? The US is 13% black? San Diego is 5% black? Don't you really better prepare yourself for the larger world if you live and learn and have friends who constitute the larger world? What's your thought on that, Oday? Okay, so I'll give you my. So I, I, I lived in India until I was six. So, you know, they're like, talk about homogeneous. You know, there, there's the Hindu, Muslim, right. but whatever, but as far as skin color. Brahmin. Look, Brahmin. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but as far as skin color and, you know, look, so there, there's yeah. that. When we moved to Canada, we initially lived in a more, like, it was more, I shouldn't say more integrated, but there was, pockets of South Asians in there. So there was like, you know, Canada because of multiculturalism, we became, we became more ghettoized than the idea of the melting pot. So, oh. was, but then after a couple of years, we moved to a neighborhood that was, and it wasn't like, it was like my dad was saying, we want to move to a, a white neighborhood or whatever. But he just said like, I didn't move my family from India to Canada to live in little India. He goes, I want my family to live in, in Canada. I want my, you know, right. we should integrate, we should mix in with our society. So we moved to a, you know, more white neighborhood. Um, and then again, when we moved after that, it was another suburb and that was predominantly white. And I go, okay, but Canada is more white than the U.S. if you look at like, you know, demographics and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I remember in my high school, I think there was maybe, you know, it was a grad class of, I think, 150 a little bit more and then they think there's yeah, about yeah. I think there's about 10 15 percent that wasn't white um all told so i mean it was you know but i never had so i didn't know anything else i mean i saw some of my you know friends of the family and family and stuff like that like cousins who grew up more in um like neighborhoods where it's concentrations of south asians so and mm -hmm. more of their friends were you know, Indian or Pakistani or something like that. Whereas almost all my friends were, yeah, majority of them were white. Did you know there was a uh, there was a couple that were you know Chinese. There was a couple others that were Indian, but the majority were white. Um, and so it's so yeah. I mean, I, that's what I had, and I just I, I grew up like that. You know, there was never any racism or anything like that. You know, we all joked with each other. We pushed each other as far as we could, you know, a uh, you know, right. friend who was German, we'd call him a Nazi and just, you know, like whatever, like we were just, you know, but this was, right. you know, boys being boy, like we were just, you know, kidding around stuff, but we never had that. Like my father was the same way. He, you know, he had friends, even when he was in India, like he just did not have only Muslim friends or, you know, like he had mm -hmm. friends from all quarters and when he was mm -hmm. in Canada as well, like friends and business relations and you know acquaintances everything like of all stripes like i remember like at his funeral there was you know yes majority of people were muslim but there were you know catholics protestants jews hindus you know yep. like everyone like every, every stripe the people were there and it's just and so yeah i mean I, when i see the segregation in dorms when i see like the 
was it segregated graduations and things like that yeah. i mean you know there's a meme that that's gone around and it's uh there's a workman putting up a, a sign and it's he's scratching out uh you know people of color and then he's putting he's, he's scratching out of color then in front of people he's writing uh no sorry it said colored people's dorm so he's scratching out colored and he's putting people of colored dorm and then there's a a, a black students at all oh, finally we have a place of our own the, the workman's like yeah, we just we, we, we just we just dug this out of the basement you know like it's just you know i'm just like you like yeah you're going back to the 50s you're going back to you know segregation you're it's just and, and they're making it sound good like oh we're having like affinity groups it sounds so nice but they're not they're just segregated clubs it's just yeah 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 uh, and, and 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 but do you think is there something almost inevitable about this process, this cycling? I mean, I, I think it's like the grass is greener on the other side. Could be that the generation born in segregation desired integration. And then the generation born in integration desires segregation. And then oh. the cycle repeats itself because the grass is always greener. What do you think about that? Okay, the way I think this happened, and it's just, again, this is just me going, you know, a layman. I mean, yeah, I did poli sci, but I'm an IT geek. Right, right, I came, right. came from the outside looking in. So if you read all this stuff, you look at what the start of CRT, you look at when, you know, Crenshaw and Macintosh and all and started, writing inter, you know, started writing about intersectionality and everything. So, you know, CRT got coined and it was, I think it was a conference in 1989 where they came up with that term and they started doing it. it, it intersectionality was starting to come out. The first people, so it, like, then you could start having, you know, feminism and courses with that intersectional, I think intersectionality was the thing that really did it. And so courses with that intersectional lens in sociology and anthropology and African-American studies. And, you know, then you mm -hmm. also had it in feminism, stuff like that. Then you went from women's studies to gender studies, like it, things right, changed. Right. So the first people who came out with masters and maybe PhDs came out in the late nineties. And then these yeah. people started going into back into politics, back into the administration of the, of the schools back then into like HR departments and things like that into entertainment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is the long march of the institutions. I'm not saying anyone did yes. this by design, but you're going to hire like-minded people. So, you know, let's say uh, right after 9-11, the, the Bush government, like, okay, we're going to go into Iraq. We're going to do all this. Okay, we're getting blasted on racism and Islamophobia and everything. So we're going to go hire some people on race. So who do you go look for? People with degrees in sociology, focusing on CRT or focusing on African-American studies or whatever. Like you, you're, you're going to get, mm -hmm. the, and these people came out with that lens. So mm -hmm. it slowly baked itself in and it started building and building and building. And you've gotten to the point now where the CDC is deciding to give out vaccines according to race. You know, you've got med schools telling doctors to take, you know, DEI oaths, above the Hippocratic Oath. So it it got so baked in and it's just, now it's at a point where I'm like, you know, it, you either have to burn these institutions to the ground and start from new, or you have to like actively, you have to look at this as people bringing in a religion. So if someone started proselytizing Christianity or Islam in the office, you have grounds to fire them. If you're proselytizing this stuff in the office, you have grounds to get fired, and I I, I think that's mm. how we have to start looking at it. And it's uh, like again, I, I'm trying to be realistic. I think if you can get that sure. done, then you have, might have a chance to push back. But if you can't, where like I said, you know, they're the long march through the institutions is taking that victory lap. 
So where 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 is the modern day classical liberal Kimberly Crenshaw? Where's the modern day classical liberal Derek Bell? Where are the people who have the intellectual tools and resources to bring about the new movement? Okay, well, well I know. actually that actually ties into what I was going to ask Jen. <laughs> Okay. Which is thanks, great, because I was going to jump in there. <laughs> okay, because yes, the Institute for Liberal Values. So, so you know, I've spoken with David, uh, and you yeah. know, I've, I've, they've been around for a little bit, and I know they kind of absorb counterweight and stuff. So, I think that's a good place to start. Of where are these people? Because you know, I could point out people like Helen Pluckrose, and you know, mm -hmm. again, I mentioned John Recorder. I can, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's other people Coleman out there who Hughes. are right. Yeah, yeah, Coleman Mary Hughes. Foster. Um, yeah. yeah. So there, there are some people out there. Um, so, but Jen, since you're working with them and you're, you're a director, you like, talk about them and their mission. And like, because I want to just not talk about how this stuff is bad and I don't like it. I'd rather, you know, you're actually starting to do something about it. Fire is actually starting to do something about it. You know, so I'd like mm -hmm. to see, I'd like to focus on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. And also, look, I, I, I want to be conscious of you guys' time. So please, if I'm you know, hogging your time, let me know. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. yeah. No, I, well, I, I love thank you for the question because I'm so passionate about what we're doing. And I'm so passionate about the people that I get to be with every single day, including Wink. And while Wink is a practicing attorney, you know, he's always rooting, you know, for, for us in the Institute of Liberal Values. But really think if you want to see what it's about and who the change makers are, I would look at the board of directors. I mean, I, again, so honored that I'm in this group of people, but you've got Eric Smith, who I would put at the top of that list. Jason Littlefield, Xander Keg, David Bernstein that you already mentioned, obeyed. And all of these people are work. One of the things that's, that we're doing together as a group. So this, and when I say as a group, not just ILB, but Free Black Thought, Empowered Pathways, uh, you know, JILB with, with David. We and, and something new that Eric's working on called mutual persuasion. But what we're doing together is this coalition for empowered education. So we're taking these ideas around empowerment theory that Eric uses a lot in his work and that Jason Littlefield has been using a lot in his workshops. And we're we're actually pushing back. This is where I get excited because I think I really do feel like this is where the answer is. We're pushing it back against teacher training. To start, we're pushing back against teacher training the liberated ethnic studies model and the eth liberated ethnic studies curriculum. But we're not saying, and this is where this is, I mean, I get so frustrated in the United States because we're this either or society. So we're not saying we're, we're versus on the right, we're saying let's just like do away with it all. No, let's just do it well and do it correctly in a way that empowers us in our individuality, uh, no matter how much melanin we do or don't have in our skin. And so I, and here's the thing, what's exciting is, Obey, there's an interest for this. There's a need for this. We've received some funding around this. So even though I think that we are the dissidents, so to speak, or the insurgents, if you will, I see hope in the fact that people are coming together and these change makers are coming together and say, and there's donors coming together and say, we will we will help you to realize this because the real change is going to come in how we teach our kids around classical liberal values. And that's what's missing right now. Jen, do you feel comfortable sharing some of the inspirational details from last year's conference in Chinatown, the new mm -hmm. Alliances Retreat? Remember that? Yeah. There were about, you know the details, but there were like 40 to 50 leaders from across yeah. the country 
uh, devoted towards this this idea, this mission. Think about that for a bit. That was brilliant. That was the coming together. It was called the New Alliances uh, Conference Obeyed. And it was Black, Jewish, and Asian societies and groups and organizations and leadership coming together to see how we could talk about these issues that we are they are facing um you know as quote unquote minorities and the coming together and the the just the brain trust in that room and the people who showed up because they believe so much that the conversation yeah. that we're having and ironically the conversation that we're having that labels us as Black, Asian, Jewish, you know, um, it's kind of this, this irony. To, we have to come together with these labels to push back against the labels themselves. But that's exactly what happened. I mean, you had Sheena Mason, who talks about theory of racelessness, right? Yeah. Camille Foster, who also kind of is like let's race, living in a post-racial world. And to see that coming together and that, and we are continuing to operate in that way, through the Institute of Liberal Values with, you know, a tighter group of groups, but it's that network of various communities that are coming together because of race to work across. It felt to me, I was there, it felt to me like the Niagara movement of our mm -hmm. time because there was such a um, an energy and passion and brain trust in the room. Roland Fryer was there from Harvard. Jonathan Haidt was there. Uh, leaders from the California Equal Rights um, Coalition, the group fighting CRT yep. were there. Um, there was someone from Canada. Jonathan Kay was there. Uh, I could go on and on. Ian Bray was there. It was like uh, an all-star cast, uh, some of the leading intellectual lights dedicated towards this proposition that uh, we're more than avatars for our race. Okay, on that, because this is one of the hypocrisies I see in this. Like, so... Some of the things I've seen over the, you know, since I got back from overseas was, okay, during COVID, there was a conference in Toronto about brown complicity and white supremacy. The organizers of this conference were, one of them is the head of the largest student union or school board in, in Ontario. The other one, she was like the chief editor for the Toronto Star, which is a major newspaper in Canada. Um, and it was things about how like brown people getting hired gives white people an excuse to say they're not racist, takes away jobs from black people. Then I've seen things like, uh, you know, yellow privilege uh, and things like that. And then then the, the anti-Semitism, like how Jews have white privilege and Jews have whiteness on them. And, you know, in the book, uh, In Defense of Looting, she writes about the, the Korean grocers on top of their uh, stores during the uh, Rodney King riots and compares them to Jewish store owners in the 60s and the Watts riots and said, you know, just like the Jews in the 60s, the Koreans were the face of capitalism in their neighborhoods, and capitalism is whiteness. Um, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, after the George Floyd riots, when synagogues got vandalized and a couple got burned, it's like whiteness is property, and it's, you know, it's only damage to property. And, you know, okay, Canada, again, our government paid this guy to be an anti-racist trainer for our national broadcasters or our public broadcaster, CBC, um he the day he became, became a canadian citizen he put out a tweet about how canada is a colonizing country blah 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 <laughs> anyways the guys are raging anti-semite he had tweets out he was under the watch of csis which is like the canadian cia for lack of a better term or uh it's a cross between cia and fbi um and they uh he also put out how you know jews should be killed and 
I mean, just just raging anti-Semite, and in his defense, he said, "Well, I'm only talking about white supremacist Jews." So you know, you have this idea of Jews taking on whiteness. I mean, <laughs> hell, sorry, because this like a real like this is real world harm that's being done, and it's so Israel and Gaza got into a you know, Hamas got into a thing, rockets back and forth, blah blah blah. There's pro-Palestinian protests all across the country, um, and. Then around the world, but you know specifically in Canada, but Jews were being chased down the streets by these pro-Palestinian protesters. Okay, so this is happening in Canada. The first reaction Trudeau had, and he deleted the tweet a few hours later, was to warn people. But he, his first reaction was to warn people not to be Islamophobic. And so, like you know, D- David, um, and also there's Nicole Levitt. I've read things they've written where they were in. Jewish organizations talking about a swastika drawn in front of a synagogue or something. And then there were people in that organization who wanted to talk about how this is affecting anti-blackness. And I'm like, well, no, if there's a swastika drawn in front of a, a synagogue, I think you should talk about anti-Semitism more than anything else. You know, <laughs> maybe. So like it, it's the hypocrisy that's built into it. And it's, you're dividing yourselves up to be conquered. You know, again, in a majority white country, mm-hmm. why do you want to split up the minorities? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? You know who split up the minorities? I'm pretty sure that was the work of Stalin. So, you know, yeah, but, mean, <laughs> and that didn't end up well. No, but it's, but it's, I mean, it's like, you're doing it to yourselves. Like you're, you're like, I just shake my head. I'm like, you're creating this white racial, you know, consciousness. And yet then you're dividing all the minorities to fight amongst themselves. You know, if I was a KKK well, I- I'd sit back and let them do it. Like, go ahead. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, you know, one of my um, life principles is to to not engage bullies, uh, to not subject myself to manipulation, the use of slogan words, because really you can't argue with people who are committed to um, slogan words and jargon as, a, as an article of religious faith almost. So when you mentioned that the book was named In Defense of Looting, that was enough for me. <laughs> guy, but that was up for me, right? So, so, so this is my thing. I keep coming back to, and and if you disagree, let me know. But I keep coming back to this idea that maybe there's value for us of a similar mindset, kindred spirits, to look at how people in Prague did it. How did people in Moscow do it? How did Soviet dissidents do it? How do people who object to orthodoxy, conformist dogma, how do they turn things around? Because we may need to look to their examples for insights and for elimination on the path. Or or maybe you would argue Prague can't help us. Soviet dissidents and their stories. No, no, you know what? They can help us. But I think the problem here is people are scared and okay, they have some reason to be scared. Like I realized employment, whatever, but for the most part, we aren't in Prague. We aren't in, you know, Soviet Russia. We aren't in mm-hmm. a, a, a Muslim theocracy. We, you know, even in Canada with hate speech laws and stuff, we do have some, you know, we do have some speech and we can speak out. So people need to start getting brave. It's just, yes. you know, yes. if people are scared and yes. it's just like, you know, Douglas Murray said this, if you're like, come on in, the, the water's not that bad. It's yeah. just, you yeah. know, like it's like, and then, you know, the whole, Ayan Hershey Ali was talking about it, this was like withdrawing Muhammad. It's like, you know, spread the risk. 
the more people there is. And yeah. I believe we're in the majority. I believe like right now we're in the majority. There's more people that think like us than think like, mm-hmm. you know, the woke racist or the, 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 the redneck you know, white supremacist racist, whatever. Like mm-hmm. it's, we're in the majority, but people just need to stop being complacent and need to just grow a spine and just stand up for what's right. And so what do we do? How do we inspire more courage? Do we write more books? write more essays, articles, novels, screenplays? Do we testify more? Do we write op-eds? How do, do we do all of those things? I mean, they, they, uh, I, 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 all those things are good, but I mean, on an individual level, and again, this takes someone who's got the time and the ability, but okay, there's this guy in Canada, Chris Elston. Uh, mm. People call him Billboard Chris. And he's, oh, yes, yes. okay, he just does it for gender. And I mean, I, he's come to Montreal a couple of times. I've met with him. I've spoken mm-hmm. to him here. And you know, he doesn't fight back. He's being beaten. He's had his bones broken. He's had his equipment broken. Mm-hmm. He All he does is talk to people. So, I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you do something like that along, let's say, racial lines, you know, I mean, I, I've joked about it where I was like, I'm going to get a sandwich board and just, you know, Canada is not a systemically <laughs> racist country and we'll go across the country and have conversation. It's just, right. you know, but I, th- you know, like what you're talking about, we need all that. But I think we also need a grassroots. We don't need a top-down answer to this. And unfortunately, we're mm-hmm. getting some of that, like some of the legislations in the states, some of the stuff that's mm-hmm. happening in Canada. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's an overcorrection, and you're going too far the other way. Mm-hmm. We need an actual grassroots. So parents defending education—that was a really good thing. But you know, the FBI is calling them right-wing supreme, you know, supremacists and Christian nationals. It's just SPLC is like labeling them as like a dangerous group. I mean, yeah. you know, there is some struggle in there, but people need to get brave. It's just, you know, like, mm-hmm. like we're far too complacent. And it's, you know, it, it, it's yeah. like, it's like the late, em- you know, any, any, you know, late part of any empire. So like the, the later part of the Roman empire or the, the Greeks or the British, like we've gotten We've gotten fat and rich and indolent and lazy, and no one's doing anything. It's just, you know. All right. I'm going to push back a little minor second. Just push back a little bit. Have you heard the adage, hard times make strong men? Yes. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. So if that cycle is true, right? Mm-hmm. Then maybe we're going through weak times, but weak times will create the strong men that will then bring in the new good times. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, but that's a long cycle. I, I mean, know. I know. Yeah, okay. I know. You know, I, know. I, mean, it's, I know. I know. Okay, okay look, the, the, so, the fall of the Roman when, Empire. When Kimberly was at the faculty lounge in 1989, do you think she was thinking, I'm going to have intersectionality down within a year or two, widespread adoption. Was she thinking 20 and 30 years down the road? I was thinking 20, 30 years down the road. The people who thought up the long march through the institutions were not thinking next year or five years or 10 years. They were thinking a generation or two. We have to do the same thing. We really do, I think. Yeah, okay, yes. You have to think a generation or two. You have to go ahead. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll say the same thing about this 
when I was in Afghanistan and I was, when I first got there and I was looking at it and I saw like what was going on, I said, this is a generational fight. You've had the That's Taliban right. take over the schools and everything. And they've been living under this. You had no technology for like 20 or 25 years before the U S came in. And right. now, yes, you've had, you've had intersectionality in high schools in the U S well, in some high schools, in some districts, I shouldn't say it wasn't like widespread, mm-hmm. but starting back in around 2008, in Canada, you had it roughly around the same time in certain provinces and mm-hmm. certain school boards. But now it just like by 2017, I think it was in the States, it was in 16 states, you know, K through 12. Um, yeah. in Canada was in, you know, three of the provinces. Now, again, it's going widespread. So, yeah, you, yeah. and then you take into social media, you take in, you know, all the other, like all the other, like, it's coming in from Disney. It's coming in from yeah, all sides for little kids. So it's it's a but, generational thing. Like, but you, it's not, it has to start somewhere, and you need exactly you need people who know what it was like before ninety seven. Yes, yes. Know, that's the, the, right. That's so right. And then that's you need so the people right. who have the awareness of what it was before. Like I, I used the night around ninety seven because, like I said, that's when the intersectionality yeah. thing started really blowing up. And you right. need that mindset. You need those people to stand up now and say, "Okay, no, enough's enough. It was better back then. Let's go back to that mindset." You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so true. That's so right. One of my favorite podcasters is Lex Friedman, and he had an interview with uh, I forget her first name, but I think her last name is Park. He's a famous North Korean. You, you, you know me, Park. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about her experiences. And at one point, she said that her grandmother remembered a better time, how things used to be. And then she said, she wondered, why didn't grandmother speak up? Why didn't the old people, the grandparents speak up? And Lex said, well, you know, the problem was uh, some people knew but they were afraid to speak up and then other people never knew there was a better way. And I, and I fear that's where we're coming to in this, this age. There are people who remember a better time, but they have to not be afraid to speak up. And then there may be generations below us that never knew there was a better time. That's the scary mm-hmm. part. Yeah. People who never knew things could be different. That's yeah. scary. I mean, that's one of the things that my, like I say, you know, I worry about is, I don't know if you've read David Deutsch's book, The Beginning of Infinity, and no, no. Uh, he talks about pockets of enlightenment that have happened throughout the world. So, you know, the Greeks and the Romans, mm-hmm. uh, the golden age of Islam, uh, right, right. you know, and then the enlightenment. And so I'm, you know, I, I say like, I, my biggest fear is that a thousand years from now, a future David Deutsch is going to write about us as a pocket of enlightenment <laughs> that got extinguished. And I don't want to see that happen, because like yeah. I said, we're at late stage mm-hmm. empire right now. The way we're the way we're acting, we're at late, you mm-hmm. know. And it's um, I, a friend of mine, Faisal Al Mutar and uh, you know, Melissa Chen. They have this organization, mm-hmm. Ideas Beyond Borders, where they translate books on philosophy and science into uh, Arabic, Farsi, and Kurdish, and they make yeah. it available throughout the Middle East for free. And you know. They're doing that to spread these ideas back to the Middle East. And then again, you know, I talked about the golden age of Islam. They do incorporate the fact that if it wasn't for free thinkers in that period in Islam, that were, you know, North Africans and they were Arabs from Iraq and they were Persians. And if it wasn't for them, this thought would have died out when the Mongols burnt Baghdad. And because of them, it dispersed into Europe. So when, you know, the mullahs and everything in 
these countries say, well, you're just being colonized again by accepting Western values. It's like, no, they're not Western values. These were values that, you know, the Arabs kept alive or Muslims kept alive mm-hmm. after the Greeks and the Romans. And it went into Europe. Mm-hmm. Now you're bringing that knowledge back to yourselves. And so like, that's part of their mission. But my thing is if no one else picks it up and we let that flame get extinguished here, you know, it's going to take a few hundred years before these ideas come back. I mean, I don't, there's a really good article about this. Uh, he was, it was in uh, Aeon. Um, it was this guy in Ethiopia. He was a, he was in the court and the Catholics already come in. I believe the King had converted to Catholicism. This, this guy had made a comment against Catholicism or against the King that went and hid out in a cave near this tiny village. Mm-hmm. And in there, he wrote ideas that were very similar to like Kant and Hume, but a hundred years before. And then people had found these writings of his, and you know, so these are natural human ideas that can come up from mm-hmm. other places. So it's like, I, I, I do think if it dies out, it's not going to stay dead for long, like you know, forever. But we're going to suffer, and you know, whatever. I'm right. going to be selfish right. here, and like, yeah, no, I'd rather not. <laughs> right. 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 I agree with that totally. Totally. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I mean, do you think that the generations that Wink thinks has has hope in that there might be kind of a a, a black swan event or something cataclysmic that can't be stopped once it started that won't allow aliens. us to, to get to yeah maybe well, maybe aliens. Artificial to get to that, get to that better age. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I again, I hope something changes around. But I, I look at the K through twelve, and I'm looking at it. It's like, you know, it's a school to extremism pipeline. So it's not just they're going to go to Antifa and BLM. They might go to you know Proud Boys and Aryan Nation mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you're you're going to have a larger pool of kids who are not stable for the extremists to like recruit from. So are mm-hmm. you, you know, it, we could have a really bad clash that might wake some people up or it might just solidify lines and then something horrific is going to happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, whatever happens, I don't think it'll last forever because not, you know, nothing does You're like, you know, you know, look at my works, you might be in despair, but you know, it's something will, if something bad happens now and it gets, I, I, I don't think, an oppressive system would last too, too long because they kind of eat themselves, but you know, you're still going to have 70 to a hundred years of absolute crap before things start getting better again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, like I said, I just, I'm, I see what the problem is. And I, I see what I'd like to get done. I not taking a bet either way, how it's going to go. I just, you know, I, I'm hoping it goes for the best. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just to go along with the uh, Jen's, uh, speculation. Uh, I'm not sure I put too much stock in the discovery of alien spacecraft. I think that they just proved to be, yeah. Uh, I like aliens. the idea. It's a nice idea. But uh, but I but I, I I wonder if there's more to chew on when it comes to artificial intelligence. I, over the past few weeks, have been watching YouTube videos about that. And it really does seem like within 18 months or so, Computers will have reached uh, a level of IQ, artificial general intelligence, 
which is far greater than any single human. And I just wonder, what impact will that have on society? Will it, for example, collapse our sense of shared reality, and maybe accelerate that collapse of reality? Or will it do to our sense of trust, collective trust? Because if you can't trust what you see on television, if there's so much Photoshop in virtual reality, what impact will that have on race relations? And I just don't know the answer, but it seems to me that if you have the rise of artificial intelligence that is so that is that is far superior to human intelligence, that's going to tip the uh, the cart somehow, some way. I mean, for example, maybe we'll um, displace and render more people unemployed. Maybe it will accelerate the cause for reparations for American slavery as a backdoor for universal basic income, right? Uh, because people will become even more superfluous. Uh, but I just don't know. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Artificial intelligence and its role on race relations and- uh, race Okay, well, I mean, first of all, artificial intelligence is a, is a black box. Okay, I, I yes, I work in IT. I look oh, after good. okay, but, but I, it's a lot of caveats here. I, work, I look after communications. Okay. I guess right. put me in the middle of a desert. Like I've built up communication systems for the military in like the middle of Afghanistan. I've looked after internet right, right. systems up in northern right. Canada, so I can design and help you build that. I'm not a programmer. I don't know anything, but from what I can understand of artificial intelligence stuff, so there is already some built-in AIs. Like so, if you have a chatbot or whatever, that's an AI, right? Yeah, you have like yeah. ChatGPT. That's an AI. Um, so you're talking about more of an artificial general, like general artificial intelligence. So it's, 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 it's right. the, like chatbots and things like that are starting to get more generalized, but they're still fairly, fairly specific. Um, right. so it's, it, it's a black box. Like now it, I wish, okay. My thing with artificial intelligence. So the things like the chat GPTs and things like that, um, it's the way I look at Google. We treated information the way we treated other, uh, the way we the way we dealt with information, we were looking at it as a technological advancement, like let's say the washing machine. The washing machine lets you do your laundry a lot quicker than sitting by the river with a wash, you know, scrub mm -hmm. scrub pad and doing your laundry and whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right, right. So technology and inventions were to aid you and to help you and to make your life easier and to speed things along. We mm -hmm. dealt with information the same way. We didn't give ourselves the wisdom or the ability to glean what we were getting and so you know whatever you, in the late 80s or whatever if you're in a bar talking to people and you have like you know stupid trivia and you know like uh how many eggs did cool hand luke eat and stuff like that <laughs> you know but now it's just like you get out your phone you go on google and you get an answer and you 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 blindly accept that answer so right, with right. with with things like chat gpt and stuff like that like that my immediate concern about ai is some people are using it to like help them write code and things like that, but they know what they're doing and they're using it to help them write code. But what's the next 10 years from now or five years from now, are there going to be programmers that just rely on that to write your code for you? And they don't know how code is written. Like, so on the kind of it work that I do, I've seen, I've seen people like come up after me who didn't learn the basics and the fundamentals of like DOS and stuff like that. And understand like, how to get into an operating, like how to get into a computer when Windows isn't working, how to like mm -hmm. you know, solve that stuff out. So mm -hmm. they just know how to use what's been given to them. So they don't, and so like now if you using these 
AIs to write code for you, but you don't know exactly the mechanics of how the code works. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Now, as far as what's it going to do for race relations and stuff, I mean, I don't even want to hazard a guess, but I don't know if you've ever heard of this thought experiment called Roko's Basilix. No, and, no, no. Okay, yeah. so it was... Uh, I, I mean, a lot of people found it horrific, but Roko's Basilic is, is basically about AI. So it's like, okay, if you, it, if an AI is emergent and it's inevitable, inevitable that a general AI will come about, it's better to help its inception than to not, because if it does come out, come about and take over humanity, it will know those who helped it and then reward them. Oh. <laughs> so oh. it's it's looking at it from like, it's going to be a bad thing. So, um, you know, I'm all for learning and I'm all for research and I'm all for, you know, but I want caution. I, I, I think we're getting too ahead of ourselves in some things. Like, like just because we can do it, should we like, do we, I'm not, I'm not saying that Skynet's going to come about or anything like that, but, right, 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 right. you know, but I look at some of those Boston dynamics robots and I look at the way you see China do these really cool displays of drones and they're putting on these light shows and stuff right right i'm like but they're showing you how much they can control that and like they're showing you their power right there you know so if you've got an ai controlling that and that can be weaponized that's dangerous and then what's the ai going to do you know again it's a black box so if you tell it you know uh figure out a way to fix homelessness and it decides, well, the best way to fix homelessness is to get these drones and go out and kill all the homeless people. Yeah, right. Okay, right. like we don't know enough about how we think. How are we going to create something that that thinks, you know, thinks like us, right? Quote unquote. Like it's, it's right, right, right. So right. my concerns are more like I do the research and look into it, but you know, don't create a golem that's going to come back and kill you, like. One of, one of my concerns, because I've played around with it a little bit over the past few weeks, is that when you plug in certain queries or prompts, mm-hmm. there definitely seems to be a political bias to the answers. So, for example, I, I tried to create like an outline for a novel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, falsehood and truth. And I asked for like a number of character profiles. So it's almost laughable. Maybe every third profile character was some ethnic minority or involved in social justice or was woke or involved in intersectionality. None of the characters were conservative. None of the characters were traditional. <laughs> the characters were classical liberals. And so to me, that was a very subtle bias drug in the system. So most people aren't going to take the time to rethink kind of subtle biases they're getting from GPT chat. I think that's kind of a problem. It's kind of nudging you in a certain direction, right? Well, I mean, I saw some things on that uh, a couple of years back where they said, well, okay, well, we have to make sure we program the algorithms and everything to be equitable. So this was already coming into me. Like, you know, you talk about social justice Mm -hmm. math and garbage like that. So Mm -hmm. it's it's been around. Um, look, it's been awesome talking to you guys. I could keep going, but I should oh, I really, uh, I, I should really, it's, it's, it's coming up on a couple hours and I, I, you know, <laughs> I do need to get a couple of, a few things done. Thank you both so much. This so has been fun. Yeah. No, this has been awesome. I mean, I, I like yeah. I said, I, we could talk, I'd love to talk to you guys for hours and I, you know, we, we could do it again a little bit, but, uh, you know, if you each have some closing words and 
you know, thoughts of hope or anything like that, that'd be great. Oh, good lord! <laughs> and also, I mean, I know Wink, you don't really have a presence, but Jen, you know, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, and yes, also Jen. send me any links to IL, uh, ILV where people can donate or anything like that. I'll put it in the, uh, cool. the show notes. Awesome, I will do. Yeah, so we ILV, you can find us at ilvalues.org. Or I, I values in Twitter, on Instagram, and the website's ilvalues.org. So that's where, and then for me in oh. particular, we also, I just, well, I did want to mention our website for our book, or our website for Wink and I is truthinbetween.com. So all the, if you, when you get into the book, if you look at, if you want to see original documents, you can access all of our original documents that we talk about in the book at that site. So, and that's where you can oh. find me on social media as truth in between. All right. And also I will oh. put the links to, I'm assuming it's like available on Amazon, all that. So I'll put the link where yeah. people can get it and I'll put the link to your site as well. I will send oh, it cool. to you. Oh. And I, I do have a Facebook page. It's WF Twyman Jr. Writers page. And I occasionally submit posts now and then about the book and other matters. Um, but in closing, I just would say, if you want to make the world a better place uh get to know people one another as individuals and that'll take you farther than any uh slogan words or dogma could possibly take you oh, that's great well thank you again both very much and thanks everyone for listening i'll be back thank you thanks so babe